0: Not only do I hope that this podcast helps you grow, but it would grow your affections for Jesus. So let's dive into this episode of Sacred City Vision Drip. For those of you who did not know, uh, this is the second one of these worldview seminars that we hosted are hosting. It um, was it November when we did the very first one. December is obviously a very busy month, and we're back at it here um, in January. And um, when I left off at the end of that very first seminar, I kind of gave a teaser that we can talk about politics uh, from a biblical worldview, which is a very fun, very exciting, love to talk about that. It's very fun, um, but it's a... Uh, a topic that needs a little bit of uh, preliminary work before we can do that. Like I said on Sunday, you gotta crawl before you can walk, you gotta walk before you can run, you gotta run before you can run with the bulls. Um, the politics from a Christian worldview is, is one of those situations. You gotta have some, some things in your pocket, some skill sets, before you can get after it. Um, and so re- the reality is, before we can talk about economics, before we can talk about politics, about education, talk about social matters that are impacting our world that we live in, We need to have a religious or a theological foundation. Um, And that's what we wanna do tonight. We wanna build um, a foundation for us to build off of in all of these other areas and facets of our life. Now, the reason why we go to the religious worldview, the religious framework first is because everything is religious. Everything has some tint of morality to it, wherever there's morality, there is some sort of implied religion. There's a, an assertment of what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's evil, what's righteous in some shape, some form, some way. So everything comes back to a religious topic in some fashion. And so we're going to work out the framework, this, this foundation for that tonight. Hey, guys, come on in. Um, Gary DeMarsh says that a, a, a biblical worldview can never be separated from Jesus' saving work. So all of the different tangents and facets that a biblical worldview might bring us to um, are, are all for naught if they are detached from Jesus' saving work. If men and women do not turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will turn to themselves, to another individual, to an ideology, or a movement, or the state our choice of savior determines the basis of our trust and reason for living. That's why he goes back, everything's religious. There's no neutrality. There's no, no neutral zone. Everything is, in fact, religious. So we want to talk about some of these essential realities that we're working through. Um, we're going to be talking about um, essential realities. How, what, I use a, a foundational framework um, uh, we'll get into some of the, the, the primary presuppositions of a Christian worldview that will help us develop our worldview beyond the religious realm into the social, economic, political, and uh, what's the other one? Educational realm. Um, so um, we are going to build, start the foundation work. Um, for some of us, this might seem kind of dry, Um, And so I just wanna say, hang in there. I'm proud of you for being here. Um, I'm gonna do my best to make this um, real practical, work through some intellectual stuff, and get into, okay, so now what? Or what's the big deal about that sort of conversation? So I wanna keep it uh, moving in that way. I do have a lot of ground to cover. Um, And so I'm gonna try to move at a pretty good clip. But if I say something that is not clear or you've got a question, feel free to interrupt. I'll circle back around. Um, I will try to stop here and there to, um, to have some time for questions. But anyway, I just wanted to extend that invitation. Um, so, we need to do some, a little bit, I'm not going to rehash the entire last session, but we wanna do, I want to do a little bit of a, a refresher here about some of the things that we established last time we were together for one of these biblical worldview seminars, and the best place to start is with a definition. What is a worldview? When we talk about worldview, what are we talking about? Everybody. Everybody, okay. Yeah. Yep, that's good. Any other thoughts? Pieces of a worldview? That's really good. Um, the lens. The lens, yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. I'm going to share with you an academic definition. Uh, that we worked through this last time, but it kind of helps sort of pull in all the different pieces of the worldview to show how comprehensive and how far reaching a worldview is. Uh, James Sire says a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story. So, first, a commitment, so there's an intellectual aspect, there's a fundamental orientation of the heart, so belief is at play here that can be expressed as a story. Or in a set of presuppositions, which are assumptions about what may be true, partially true, or even entirely false. We hold these presuppositions consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. If I break it down into layman's terms here, what you got on your sheet. Um, A worldview is a lens composed of conscious and subconscious beliefs by which a person sees, makes sense of, and lives in the world. So this worldview is something that we look through. It's a hermeneutic, it's something that we use to make sense of, to interpret what we're seeing. And then that enables us to live in a certain way. So, so our worldview is always going to be fleshed out um, in some kind of practical application. Our life is going to reveal what it is that we uh, hold to as those core, both conscious things that you actually know that you believe and subconscious things, things that slip into your mind that maybe come from your upbringing or background or, or the media or whatever it is, wherever you're picking up some of these beliefs, they're still at play, whether you know they're there or you don't know um, they're there. Oops, there's that. Um, I'm already behind all this technology. I can tell this is not gonna work out. Um, so that's the first thing. Gary DeMar, again, going back to this guy, he's, he's really helpful in this. Um, he says a worldview is simply the way that you look at yourself and the world around you. It includes your beliefs about God, yourself, your neighbors, your family, civil government, art, music, economics, history, morality, education, business, and all other areas of life. It's comprehensive. Um, your worldview is gonna impact everything In life. So that's the first thing. Uh, Second, that we need to refresh um, is to realize that everyone has a worldview. It's not a matter of if you have a worldview, but what worldview do you have? What kind of worldview do you have? And the way that we assess it as Christians um, is going to be does it align with the scriptures? Does it, does it, is it backed by the word of God? Does it conform to God's view of the world? So in other words, are we thinking God's thoughts after him and making sense of things the way that God makes sense of things? That's going to determine if we have a good worldview, a, a biblical worldview, a reliable worldview, comprehensive worldview, a, a, a non-contradictory um, worldview. I said worldview a lot. There's gonna be a lot of worldviews. Um, but that's gonna determine what kind of worldview that we carry. Um, if a worldview... Is not aligned to God's view of the world. It is a faulty worldview. Um, it is either one, inconsistent, where we hold two competing thoughts together and we try to, they're, they're, they're contradictory to one another, but we try to hold them together and it just doesn't work. It's, it's, it's inconsistent internally. Um, or uh, it's incomplete, meaning that we might have pieces of a biblical worldview, but we don't have enough to give a comprehensive uh, worldview. And so one of the things the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, um, he talks about how this worldview um, is a spiritual reality, something that's spiritually discerned. He says it's, it's not something that you arrive at by your own will or you set out one day and say, today I'm going to have a biblical worldview. Um, it's not how it works. It has to be revealed to you. 1 Corinthians two fourteen: the natural person or the, the non-Christian, the unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So you don't accept the things that God says. This is the way it is. This is the world that I've created. This is how it really is. We don't accept the things, or the, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the only way that we can have a consistent, a good, consistent, comprehensive worldview is if it relies heavily. In fact, it always goes back to um, the scriptures. The scriptures are the corrective lens for us to look through, to see, to interpret, and to act out on this world. Um, let's talk about number three, the different types of worldview. When we talk about worldviews, and if you study worldviews, um, there are many different names that get tossed around for different kinds of worldviews, depending on what their orientation is. So we could talk about naturalism, relativism, pantheism, pluralism, humanism, Islamic worldview, a Buddhist worldview, moral, moral, moralistic therapeutic deism, and on and on and on. Like you could just go all through that list and you could lose your way talking about all these different kinds of worldviews. Uh, one of the things that's helpful for us is if we just boil it down, we talked about this in the last one, uh, the, the three kinds, I would say there's really two kinds of worldviews, but there's a third, there's, a, there's an auxiliary component. Um, the first is a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is what is known as a dependent worldview, going back to the scriptures. We depend on God's revelation through his word, um, and we hold everything that exists in relationship to God. So there's not a single piece of life that is detached from God and his word. Um, This means that a biblical worldview is going to be marked by humility and submission to God, right? Humility, we talked about this before. When we stand up here and talk about a biblical worldview, like to say we as Christians who hold a biblical worldview is right. That sounds arrogant. That sounds proud. But really what this is is a gesture of humility. We're saying we actually don't know and we're trusting God, right? That is what humility actually looks like. So this, this biblical worldview is marked by humility and submission to God. A humanistic worldview is the second worldview. Uh, where biblical worldview is dependent upon God's revelation, a human, uh, world, humanistic worldview is an attempt to have an independent worldview that is unhitched from God and his revelation, his word. This is a man-generated and man-centered way of viewing the world. It is marked by pride and rebellion against God. Those are the two worldviews that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got the biblical, you've got the humanistic. Now the third category, which actually should go in the middle here if you're working on your paper. So um, let's see. The biblical one goes on this side, the the secular or the humanistic, sorry guys you got to fix it. Scribble it. And then right in the middle, we'll call it the third category of, of worldview. I, I'm sorry, guys. I can't do it all right. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the third category is a synthetic worldview. Synthetic. Um, meaning that it's a hybrid of the two. It takes a little bit of this, a little bit of that, creates, I would say it's a subcategory of a humanistic worldview, though there are, are could be biblical components, things that scripture attests to in this kind of worldview. It is not moving in the trajectory. It's trying to live straddled between two different worlds. Um, and so there are going to be contradictions. Wherever you're trying to hold a, both a humanistic worldview and a, a biblical worldview, there will be contradictions. There is friction. There always will be. Um, to help us understand this a little bit more and um, breaking out these. Um, categories, the Nehemiah Institute, it's a a ministry that does a ton of worldview work with assessments and trainings, if you go to their website, it's very disappointing because it's a terrible website, but they do really good work. Um, They help us by understanding this on a a spectrum of, of worldviews here. Um, so on the far left, you've got biblical theism. You see a solid dotted line, right? That's a, a, a complete set of ideas that are contained in itself. On the far right, you have socialism, which is like humanism cranked up to 11, um, which uh, that also has its own set of extreme ideas, um, And then you've got those other two in the middle that lean one way or the other. So you've got the moderate Christian that definitely has some overlap with biblical theism. um, But there are things that they're definitely pulling from the secular humanistic realm or the social realm or the humanism realm. And then you've got the secular humanism um, also at play there that's mostly drawn on socialism. You could make an argument for um, social humanism borrowing... From the equity of a biblical uh, biblical theism, for example, um, in the uh, the Bill of Rights, um, when when all people are entitled to uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Is that Bill of Rights? Is that right? Okay, you guys need. Thank you. Okay, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Okay, that comes from a biblical worldview. Um, where does Darwin, right, if we're, if we're leaning towards a more man-made, developed um, worldview, where, where would a, Darwin, a Darwinian, Darwinian idea come to the idea that everybody gets to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, right? And so you'll get people um, operating in the secular humanistic realm that are pulling from um, the, the storehouses of wealth of biblical Christianity, um, and, and sort of adopting them and twisting them. So when a Christian talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we probably mean something different than a secular humanist that says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have some sort of context, some standard, some framework um, for what that means. But there you can kind of see a little bit of how this overlap happens, that, that scaling of, of worldview. Um, now, let me, uh, what time is it? Okay, um, if you had a guess, I, I could, I would break down these a little bit further, Um, we don't have time. If you had a guess, where would you say most Christians today, most evangelical, your average evangelical Christian, which realm of worldview, domain of worldviews here, do you think that they would fall into? Yeah, well, you guys are all on the right track. Um, It's not biblical theism. Unfortunately, which we're trying to work towards that. That's that's why we're here tonight. We want to to obtain that 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 gift um, from God. Um, Thirty years ago, most evangelicals were in the moderate Christian domain. Let me let me read this one. A moderate Christian. This is. Some indicators of that: a moderate Christian is basically one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. It's a blended view of God as creator and ruler, but man as self-determiner of the world. The position generally sees God as supreme in matters of religion, but not concerned with matters related to governments, economics, and to some degree, education. So that's where, 30 years ago, that's where most evangelicals—that's the land that they were in—the sort of one foot in the kingdom, one foot out. Um, Today. Most evangelicals are in the secular humanism domain. Um, in fact, 90% of Christian youth are in that segment. It's, it's alarming. I think we talked about this a little bit, and that's why there's precedent. That's why there's urgency. That's why we give ourselves to studying and thinking deeply about these things. If we're thinking about generation, building, a, the building project that God is doing here at Sacred City Moline, being a generational endeavor, We've got to have, have some um, future thought towards this. We want to help our kids to. We want to grow in this, and we want to help our kids move toward biblical um, worldview as well. Um, now, let, let me ask some questions. So if, if you have, let's say that, that we're, uh, your average church is going to have a mix of, of, of Jesus-loving um, or, or Jesus-professing Christians that are, operating from different worldviews here. You've got some people that are, you've got a small minority in the biblical theism realm. You've got a bulk of people in the moderate Christian and then another good portion in the secular humanist. What are some of the um, real world implications? What are some of the trends that we might see in a church where you have this disjointedness, where there's not that level of, of same-mindedness about viewing the world? Yeah, like what what are what are going to be some of the hiccups in doing life together or ministry, um, or the trends or, or characteristics of a church like this? Yeah. 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 Fits together. Gay marriage. Where do you stand on that? You get some people that, that, on the secular humanist side, you know, they'll be one way, and then the conservatives will be on the other side. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I think um, th- there are gonna be noticeable ch- culture shifts. I think there's gonna be, um, there's going to be an inefficiency at the, in the mission of the church. First of all, there'll be a failure to uphold the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Right? The the mind is part of loving the Lord your God. And so when our love of God is disjointed from what it looks like biblically to love God, then it's going to affect, it's gonna distort what our worship is like. In a lot of situations, you're going to have a, a dualistic divide between the secular and the sacred. Well, people say, well, God only talks about things that pertain to religion or um, about faith or salvation. He doesn't really, we don't need to talk about politics or education or anything like that. So you'll get this division. Um, there's, there'll be a failure in the Great Commission, which is to, to baptize um, and teach people to obey all of Jesus's commands um, in a church that is focus primarily on the message of salvation, which is good, right? Proclaim Christ and him crucified, that's of first importance the Apostle Paul says. Um, what can get neglected is how we then live as the saved people of God. What, what, what does the salvation that we've received in Christ uh, have to say about what I do with my vote at the poll or how I structure and organize my family and my life and all of those things or, my, or what kind of vocation I take up. Um, You'll see divisions among the church. Um, You will be unable to maintain same-mindedness. And one of the places where you'll, you'll feel the rub most constantly is in the context of a missional community. When you get people trying to navigate different things and like applying the gospel to different parts of life, you'll have this rub You'll eat on, on big things like politics and church governance and household and education, but then even like the little things will start to pick up some of this friction because you don't see the world the same. And so there's a lot of, of different ways that having this disjointed, have, not having a unified mind um, or sharing the mind of Christ in the way that, that Christ invites us into that will cause um, a disjointedness among the body and, and create, uh, will damper the effectiveness of the church and therefore um, will hinder gospel advance. So I, I do think this is something, um, the quest of, of a shared biblical worldview is something that the church is called to, to be of the same mind. And the, way, the only way we can be of the same mind is if we are going to the Bible and agreeing on what the Bible says. That's, that's, the easiest, most clear way um, to go there. So that's really what these seminars are designed to do is to move us as a church deeper into that biblical theistic framework um, and give us a comprehensive, consistent worldview. One, that is not just an intellectual thing, but functional, that it actually helps us to live wisely and honor our Lord Jesus Christ um, in all of life. Now, um, oh, missed one. Developing... A biblical worldview so if this is if the way to move towards unity and effectiveness in ministry and gospel advance lies somewhere with a piece of that is of being of of the same mind um, how do we then develop a biblical worldview this in theory is an easy thing Um, all you need to do is know the bible believe the bible and act on the bible as if it is absolutely true If everybody woke up tomorrow morning and knew the Bible, believed the Bible, and lived like it was absolutely true, we would be there, very simple. Um, That's not how it works, unfortunately. Uh, It's not that simple because, like I said, Everybody has a worldview. That means you have an operating system right now. We all have operating systems that are are helping us make sense of the world. Um, And part of developing a biblical worldview means ejecting the old operating system and bringing in the new one. And so it's got this two-fold process of rejecting falsehood and receiving truth. We don't automatically get a biblical worldview when we get saved. It's not like this... Boom, it's like a, an instant download sort of scenario. It's something that has to be developed. That's really what discipleship is, is this, this constant pursuit of Christ-likeness um, and, and of Christ-likeness having the same mind of Christ, being part of that. Um, so the two pieces, rejecting falsehood, receiving truth. Now there are no shortage of things, of falsehoods to be rejected. Um, thankfully, there are guys that are smarter than me that, that help whittle it down. Um, one of them being Dr. Joseph Boot, who suggests that there are three critical ideologies or falsehoods that Christians must vehemently reject in order to move toward a biblical framework. Um, and the reason for this, the reason why we have to reject ideologies is because ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Everything moves downstream from ideas. Um, And the reason why he whittles it down to these three things, I'm seeing panic here. Was it out of order? Oh, okay. I was like flipping pages. I'm like, did I mess it up already? Okay. The reason, okay, so here's why uh, Dr. Boot boils it down to these three things is because many of the other societal issues and uh, secular ideologies are downstream of these three things. So let's talk about them. first. First one is relativism. Dr. Booth says, the first critical thing that we must do is reject the relativism of pagan secularism with its denial of the truth in Christ and his law word. He connects the word of God and the law or the commands of God for all creation. Relativism suggests that there is no absolute truth. It says what's true for me may not be true for you right? I'll live my truth, you live your truth. What this does, in theory, creates a multiverse of truth, right? We're, we're, all create, like, we're all living in different realms of truth, Like, and ours happens to bump up. That's not how it works. There's one reality. We share it. Um, relativism tries to deny that by saying that there is no real absolute truth. But the irony of relativism is that In the same breath that it claims that there is no absolute truth, that itself is an absolute truth claim, right? To say there is no truth, there is no absolute truth, is a absolute truth, therefore relativism is not intellectually consistent. Um, There is... I believe when the Apostle Paul talks about the powers and principalities, um, he, he warns the church about not being swept up into the ideologies, doctrines of the world, the, uh, what's he called, the false philosophies. What, these, this is one of the things that he's, he's telling the church to be guarded of. Um, because I think it's from the devil. Um, there is a sinister aim to relativism, which is to deny the reality of God. God is the absolute. When Francis Schaeffer talks about God, uh, he talks about him as reality with a capital R. God is reality. And God is the absolute and God has absolutely spoken. And so he has given all people an absolute standard. So relativism tries to dismiss the, the, the absoluteness of God and the absoluteness of the standard in God's word. Leviticus 24, 22 is a place that testifies to the absoluteness. It says, there shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well for the native, for I am the Lord your God. It's just speaking to the standard of God. First of all, the, the reality of God being the shared reality, that's the reality everybody's in, and we all have the shared standard, which is the word of God, um, to... to um, orient our lives around. Um, implications of having relativism as a, a dominant force or a shared ideology, one of the things that it does is that it destroys a sense of corporate morality that would allow a society to flourish. If everybody's making their own rules, we all can't play the same game. Okay, um, a shared morality helps a society say, okay, here collectively we're saying this is good, this is worthy of pursuit, this is noble. Um, relativism destroys that and says to each his own. Um, and so it, w- the other thing that it does with that is it, it, it destroys community. If we can't share a vision of the good life or what is good and beautiful and true, it's hard to maintain a sense of community. And so relativism will isolate people um, and make it hard for any sort of connectivity. Um, in trying to destroy the category of truth um, uh, and reality, what it does then is makes sin subjective um, and, and renders the gospel useless. So if the good news is that Christ came to save sinners and relativism says, well, sin is this for you, but it's not this for me, it, it destroys the category of sin and makes, makes it so somebody say, well, I don't have sin. I don't have, anything, I don't have any problems I need to deal with, right? Because my standard is different than God's standard and it destroys any kind of need for the gospel. And so as Christians, we need to reject relativism, see it for what it is, it's a sinister uh, philosophy that's trying to to bankrupt society, to bankrupt uh, the lives of individuals, and keep people from loving God with all of their all. So that's the first thing, reject relativism. Number two, as culture moves away from Christendom and becomes more and more secular, there is an implicit and ex- explicit communication to christians and i think all religious people but especially to christians that insists that religion is a private matter that there's no place in the public square to talk about anything pertaining to religion and and that goes as far as like morality like there there's no place to talk about what's right and what's wrong what's good and what's bad and so you hear things like um, keep your religious ideas to yourself. Keep, keep your morality out of my laws. Um, don't let your Bible influence the, the law of the land. And a lot of times people live into this and push for the privatization of faith and keeping things hush hush and keeping it close to your chest um, by misquoting um, the, the whole concept or, or having a misunderstanding of the separation between church and state. Um, You cannot isolate the church and state. The church deals in the moral realm. Legislation makes moral claims. Therefore, those two things. So um, without getting deep into it, I think I've talked about this on podcasts before, but there's just a misapplication of this concept of separation of church and state that says, oh, the church needs to be quiet and go to their corner and put their head down. And what happens is that Christians have bought into it. Like, we don't want to offend people. Um, that historically speaking, we don't, we don't want to be offensive. Um, and so we kind of buy into it and, and metaphorically get driven out of the city square into the country hillsides. We have this sort of retreatist mentality. And for seven, several decades, Christians have succumbed to this and it goes back before several decades. But for a long time, Christians have succumbed to the secular bullies and have complied to their demands to keep their faith quiet. And the result is devastating. Because if you Remove Christian morality, another kind of morality will replace it. It's not a matter of if there will be morality, it's what morality. And the question should be then, is it good, is it just, does it promote human flourishing, or does it do the opposite? And um, while the United States doesn't have an official you know, state religion, um, Christianity has, in fact influenced the shaping of our, our country's values, um, visions of the good life. But in recent times, there has become a new state religion that's emerged, that's that's competing, and that state religion is secularism. Um, they're still legislating. They're still making laws. They're not moral, according to the Bible's law, or according to Bible standard, but they're still making laws, and that always, laws always have religious claims, so there's no neutrality. So, It's not a question of if there will be morality, there will be morality, what kind of morality will be imposed. And so as Christians retreat, the humanists step up and say, we've got better ideas, we'll we'll implement these things, which they do not promote to um, human flourishing. And while we feel that, we hear the voices or we feel that explicit, implicit, hey, keep that, keep your faith to yourself, um, the pressure is real, we as Christians cannot retreat Right, the integrity of our country, the integrity of our city, our churches depends on Christians being loud, um, not in a uh, not in a unnecessarily combative way. Right, I'm not not going like we don't need to start inciting any kind of riots, but there is a a a, a real integrity and openness, a public display to stand with Christ and allow the truth of Christ and of the gospel to impact every aspect of life. The gospel calls for public worship, therefore we as Christians must worship Christ in all of life. And so um, what motivates us into this, what, what, what compels us to this, is realizing that the word of God doesn't merely speak of matters of personal salvation or just in the spiritual realm. Um, the church speaks to all the, or the, the Bible, speaks to all the affairs of men. Um, this is what uh, you talk about the three uses of the law. Um, if you go back to some of the, Re- the reformer documents, um, they talk about the law to expose our need for a Savior. The other one is the law shows what righteous living looks like as the power of the Holy Spirit indwells in us. But the third use of the law, it's the second use of the law, is to show us uh, it's for the just ordering of society. It's to show us what society should be built on, like the framework of society that allows for human flourishing. The Westminster uh, Confessional calls it the body politic. It is a, a shared vision for morality and what's right and good that will govern the state and all people by restraining evil and promoting good. And what secularism does, humanism does, wants us to keep these absolute claims of the authority of Christ, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Christ, um, to ourselves and thus privatize the faith. Um, and I think to do so is a denial of the lordship of Jesus in our lives and is an abdication to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, and to let your light shine before all men. And so we must stand up into those places where God puts us, where we can speak what, what, is, what is a biblical framework, what is a biblical worldview, and let those things fly. Third, uh, third rejection is dualism. Talked about this a little bit already. But if we want to maintain a a public witness, uh, then we will accept secularism's false dichotomy between public and private. We'll we'll agree to this privatization idea that I can keep my faith private and move on with my public life, Um, and and that's what the humanist world wants. Um, They they want to create this divide between the secular and the sacred, a false divide. They want to create a divide between um, reason and faith. And uh, this is part of, of the, the Greek uh, philosophy of dualism, that there are other as- things that we can flesh out with this, um, but this is one of the things that we see, the division between the material and the immaterial, or the sec- sacred and secular divide. And so dualism wants us to compartmentalize these aspects of our life. Um, but the problem is that all of life is religious, therefore everything is before God. It's quorum Deo, Hebrews um, Hebrews 4.13 4, says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. There is not the divide. Everything is sacred, everything is before the eyes of God. Um, Richard Sibes says, We should not tr- uh, thrust religion into the corner, into a narrow room, and limit it, it's, uh, limit it to some days and times and actions and places. To serve God, to be faithful to God, is to carry ourselves as the children of God wheresoever we are so that our whole life is a service to God. So um, this this push to stay in your lane, to keep it out of the the discussions, we can't do that. To to be faithful to Christ means bringing the gospel, bringing the word of God to bear on all things. So what happens when you get these ideologies sort of mixed up in a cocktail of worldview things, you get left with a humanistic worldview. And to break it down, Actually, to, to summarize, Francis Schaeffer says this about a humanistic worldview. Uh, in this worldview, there's no absolute value system. There's no fixed basis for law and no basis for viewing man as unique and important in the eyes of a loving creator. It, it, it empties us of of the Imago Dei. It empties us of significance, of purpose, of sharedness, of, of community, um, of a shared vision. And so you end up with these two things going back to that... Um, those bubbles, right? Uh, if you go to the far right, the socialism bubble. This is this is humanism cranked up. It sounds like here, here is um, here is what religious belief sounds like according to socialism. And, and this is actually I've, I've put it on the bottom of the second page, so you can you don't have to write this down. Uh, but this is a personal it says personal religious beliefs are antagonistic to national brotherhood. So the state views religious beliefs as competitive, which is why you go to communist states and they. They shut religion down. It's threatening to them. Um, A free state is a secular state. So uh, out of the bounds of God, people's rights to believe in a God or not believe must be protected and enforced by a secular-based state. So you've got the godless sort of functioning as the police. So then um, that's, that's, that's cranked up to 11. What you probably will run into most commonly in our culture is more of this secular humanism which says that religion is a personal matter. You, again, you see this privatization, you see this dualism. It's a pri- personal private matter, therefore organized religion is discouraged. Keep it to yourself, keep it in your houses, keep it in your brain. Don't even talk about it, right? Keep it to yourself. Um, organized religion is discouraged. Spiritual fulfillment can be found primarily through self-actualization. So again, if, if the difference between biblical theism and humanism has to do with where's God at, biblical theism says God's everywhere touching everything, Humanism says, well, I don't actually need God to understand myself. I don't need God to understand the world. That's that self-actualization. No one religion should proclaim absolutes for all people. So they would look at Christians who say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, quoting our Savior, and say, how dare you, right? Keep that. No way you can say nobody comes to the Father except through him, right? That's so narrow-minded of you. And so you see a lot of that. Um, you see the intolerance of tolerance, um, now, these are ideologies. Oh, I had these written down. You don't need them. Um, as we view these things that are, are prevalent in our culture, our society, the worldviews, the shared cultural worldview of your, your fellow secular man, um, we as Christians have an obligation to reject them because they go contrary to Scripture. Um, these, as we eject um, or, or reject these ideologies, what we must do as Christians is replace them. If, if we hold to them in any, any degree, we must reject them and replace them with the truth that will then serve as a foundation for a biblical worldview. In other words, we must be thinking with the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 2.5. And help us. Um, dang, I'm booking here. Um, four realities. Let me stop here before I get into the four realities. Do we have any questions about that? I said we'd stop for questions. Here we are. Questions about any of that? Clarifications? Does, does that, as you, as you look out of the world, you talk with your friends, you see your social media feed, you see the news reports coming out, can you see these trends uh, of the humanistic worldview just at play everywhere? Right? Okay. Yeah, it's heavy. It's thick. Yes, Tim. Tim. yeah yeah that's that's another big piece of irony because and we'll we'll dig into this a little bit later on um secularism is its own religion it's its own philosophy and news reports and the media and where i mean wherever you turn to it's it's evangelizing a secular gospel like you're being evangelized to all the time with a fake gospel an anti-human, anti human anti uh, it's it's humanism, but it's an anti-humane gospel. It's not actually gonna lead to flourishing. And so the irony of that whole thing when they say, well, you keep your faith to yourself, is that they turn around and start blabbing around about, well, here's what secular, this is what humanism is, and this is what we should be doing, right? So it's inconsistent again. Yeah, they made a moral claim. Like what you're saying is wrong. Yeah. 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 Even these statements with your under the secular humanism socialism, there's moral claims wrapped up in each one of those. But they can't count for all justice Yeah. Yeah. That's always the big thing under the talking people is when they make a moral claim that's justified that for me. Yeah. Yeah. Where where are you getting this information? What like who says so? Right. By whose authority do you say that I have to be quiet about my faith? Right. And and really, you know, Scripture talks about fear of man. The antidote to, because fear of man will leave you to, to bow to the, that's, that's kind of where the church was left, right? Um, the, this sort of cowering, running out to this, the country hills instead of proclaiming from the rooftops. Um, it's a fear of man that drove us out. Well, we didn't want to ruffle feathers, we didn't, you know. But the only thing that, that flips the fear of man as a right fear of God, right? That weightiness, the awe, the surrender, the authority, the weightiness, the glory. Yeah, in, in a secular, uh, a humanistic world, he doesn't have that because it turns out the idea was comes from Bob down the street and like, who the heck is Bob? What does he know? Good question. Yeah, we'll talk about as we get deeper into these um, seminars, what Jake is hitting on here is, is, we're talking about apologetics, like these presuppositional apologetics of getting, uh, like they make a claim, getting underneath, what's the truth that that person's believing and where does it come from? Right? You're pushing the antithesis, you're pushing, okay, why, says who, because why? And eventually they get to, well, you know what it comes down to? My feelings, so subjective there's no actual platform to stand on any other questions about those rejections of falsehoods rejecting falsehood Okay well let's start building it because we we reject falsehoods and we receive the truth so I'm going to talk about four foundational realities. This, t- to be a Christian means that you believe these things. Um, these, are, you can, these are all wrapped up in the Apostles' Creed, right? Denominationally, this, the Apostles' Creed transcends Christian denomination. So it's something that almost every single Christian, I think every Christian, can agree on. Um, and it's really pulled out from there. So these four foundational realities are going to serve as a framework, um, a foundation, so we can start building off the first one. Did I say this? These realities, especially in the face of relativism, just laugh. Laugh in the face of relativism. Because these are absolute truth claims. We're, these, are, these are not subjective. These are not if you think so or if you feel like it. These, this is what reality is. Deal with it. <laughs> you know, it's true. You, you can't argue against truth. So the first one is, the first foundational reality is the triune God. God himself is reality. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both, um, well, all the creeds test, attest to the, the, the triune nature of, of our God. Um, to have a biblical worldview means that we must think rightly about God. And so um, that, that means God gets to tell us what we get to think about God. And he reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and, and so if you do not have this foundational reality of a triune God, um, y- you will not. You can't go any further. You, you can't go further into a more consistent biblical framework worldview. Um, you cannot generate your own version of this God, right? You don't get to. You didn't. You didn't make man. <laughs> You didn't, you didn't hang the stars in the sky. You don't have that kind of authority to determine what God is like. God reveals himself to us. And any time we try to generate a God in our own version, well, that's idolatry. And, and one of the things that we see in John's gospel, which I'm looking forward to spending time here um, towards the, the later half of this year. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 13, it um, says that Jesus came so that we could see God. The glory, uh, see, God's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Jesus came to reveal God. And then Jesus, later on in John 17, 3, prays for his followers, and this is eternal life, that they know you, he's praying to God the Father, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? Now, we're not leaving out the Holy Spirit because later on Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna send a helper. I'm gonna send someone who's better, it's better for me to go and send the Spirit. All right? so he's not leaving the Spirit out here in this, well, in the grand scheme of things. So Jesus came so that we would know God. Scripture reveals to us what God is like. We could say a lot about what God is like, um, but let me just survey a handful of passages here. Isaiah 40, 28. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. What does that tell us about God? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. What, what's there? Say that. Like from beginning to end. Beginning to end, yeah, the eternal. Yeah, he's eternal, The everlasting God, he's an eternal being. What else? They're uncreated, he's the, the creator. The Lord. The King, right? The authority. Revelation 4:8. These angelic beings never cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord God, Almighty, who was and is and is to come." What does that tell us about God? He's eternal. Who was and is and is to come? He's holy. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's that tell us? Say that again. Okay. He sustains. sustains. Yeah, we saw he creates, he sustains all things hold together in him right? Um, to detach from God means to cease existence, right? There, there is no life outside of God. All things hold together. Isaiah 55, 9, we're jumping back and forth between Old and New Testament. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, this is God talking, not me. <laughs> so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts? What's this tell us about God? He's wise, he knows everything, omniscient. Ephesians 1, 11. God works all things according to the purpose of his will. He's not like us. Yeah, the, the holiness definitely indicates there's some sort of, tra- there's a difference, set apartness between, what would you say? In he's in charge. He's in charge, he's sovereign. All things Work according to the purpose of his will. All things. There's not a single thing outside of that. So, here, here we have a lot of things, really important things about um, God's character. Number two, this is the second foundational reality, and this is a two parter. Second foundational reality is that God speaks. Here's the dual meaning of it God creates and God commands. In creation, God speaks. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What does he do? He said, let there be light. He said, let there be an expanse. Separate the waters from the sky, right? He said, he spoke, and out of the power of his might, creation snapped into existence. And this creation reveals the glory of God. Right? Psalm 19 speaks this. The heavens declare his handiwork. Now, when we survey the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we see that as God creates, he calls it good. So he, he, he creates and then indicates, without confusion, it's good. There's an inherent goodness in creation that God approves of. When we get to human beings, when he creates Adam, this is the apex of, of creation, and he says, this is very good. Now there's something special about being um, created as humans. It means that we are created male and female, which is shocking, I know, in the image of God, the Amago Day. Created male and female in the image of God. That means that it doesn't mean that we look like God, but there is, there, there are similarities Um, relationally. We have capacity because God is triune, He's in community with Himself. We have relational capacities. Um, God is wise, so we have rational, intellectual capacities. Um, God is just and right. Moral capacities. God is spirit, so there's spiritual capacities. We see characteristics, the character of God, so we have character. We have personality. And all of these things are a derivative of God himself, right? That's part of the Imago Dei, the imprint of God on humanity, And one of the things that we see in in those previous things as we talk about God being the creator and sustainer is that that creation cannot sustain itself. Um, Part of having a, a biblical worldview is knowing that creation is totally, whoop, I just spit big, totally dependent upon God. Creation is totally dependent upon God. So that's the first category, God speaks in creation. Second category, God speaks and commands. In the same way that God breathed into Adam, right? He took the dusts of the earth, formed it, and breathed into him. We're told that all Scripture is God-breathed. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God, spoken by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In fact, I think I'd, I Googled this today, but... Um, like the the phrase thus, thus saith the Lord is like said almost 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Like God speaks, he commands, he, he instructs. And so God gives us instruction, he gives us his word, his law, his commands that are meant to guide and govern all creation. Again, going back to Dr. Boot, he says, God's law word, connecting those two things again, gives direction to the totality of, oh, sorry, Every, when I, sometimes when I start reading, i like days off and I forget what words are what. Let me start over. God's law word gives direction to the totality of created reality and cannot be finally overturned by man's self-created illusions. Okay. Sometimes when I write this stuff, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, okay. So... So God gives his law to direct not just pieces of creation, but all of creation. Going back to that, what was it, Leviticus 22, 25, something like that. It's for all peoples. The law of God, the standard of God is for all peoples. It's his direction. It's his common grace to all peoples. You set up a society that honors the word of God. Things will go well for you. It'll be better for you than if you try to do something completely different. And so the totality of the created reality, all of things are meant to be under the direction of God regardless of how much man insists that he knows better. Does that make sense? All right. Now, um, I'll come back to this, but this is a big one. To, to view the word of God like as God breathed. Um, to, to view the word of God as, as the reformed tradition does as inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, and inspired by God requires one big presupposition. Right? The, to, to come to that conclusion means that you have a first principle of belief that God is trustworthy, that God speaks, that we can count on him, we can rely on him, that he's not gonna, he's not, you know, he's not gonna lead us astray. And so there is this this reality that, again, you cannot come to this conclusion just by, well, today I'm gonna believe. Well, that presupposition has to be revealed to you. That that belief has to be revealed to you in order to actually walk this out. The authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the authority, and the inspiration of the word of God. Those are all, guys, there may not be a more important doctrine in the church today than dealing with that, right? This is like, what? What's a? Dang it! When I read books and I can't remember, Francis Shaver talks about this as being the um this this uh, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture as being the continental divide of Christianity. So if we're divided on this one issue, the authority, the inerrancy, sufficiency, and the inspiration of Scripture, we might okay. Dude, what am I doing? Sometimes I get ahead of myself and then I just uh, try to backtrack. I can't. I'm can't. i committed to this. We're going through it. The continental divide, some geography. So up in the mountains, the continental divide is the ridge of the mountain that if rain falls, if it lands on this side of the mountain, it's gonna end up in this ocean. If rain falls on the other side of the mountain, even though it's just an inch apart, it's gonna end up on the other ocean, okay? So this is, he's saying that this is the dividing issue between, um, I guess what you could say, Christians and humanists, or Christians and and the moderate Christians, is the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency, and inspiration of the scriptures. If we disagree on that, we're going to end up miles apart, okay? What did I do there? Number three, moving along. That sounds like one of my kids. The problem of sin. The third foundational reality that we must uh, realize and, and live in just acknowledges that sin is a big problem. Um, while we were created in the image of God, we were created for eternal life with God. Um, sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three, brings, a, brings upon us separation and death. Um, etern- like spiritual death that becomes a physical death leaves us alienated, hostile in mind, and spirit towards God, enemies of God. And the life that we were created for, we're just, it's inaccessible to us. And we see how this act of rebellion of Adam and Eve um, affects everything. Creation itself is under the curse of sin due to the rebellion of A- A- Adam and Eve. Um, everyone then, every human is born into sin. Um, it's not something that you pick up along the way somewhere. You, you were there. You're born into it. The doctrine of total depravity. I mean, sin is inescapable. Where we are spiritually dead, it says there are no, no one is righteous, no, not one. Sin is a problem that has permeated through the generations and is still very much a reality today. And while we were created in the image of God, um, and sin is a uh, destructive force, the image of God is not lost, however, it is tarnished. So, the glory of relationships that we were meant to enjoy and the ability to think and reason, and, and when God invites us, come and reason with me. Well, we used to be able to do that pretty well. And now it's broken. There, there, there's the noetic effects of the fall, um, there, there are things of morality that um, it, it's corrupted our morality. Rationality, comprehension, um, our, our broken, misdirected affe- affection. Sin just scrambles us up. And you end up with the people that, um, who, are, who aren't sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. There's a foundational identity as sinners. Men and women who lie, murder, um, commit adultery, injustice, they they power grab, uh, sins of homosexuality, effeminate men, pride, failure to love one another, all of these things alienate us from God. This is sin in its effect, it's separating. It's a problem. The life we were created to enjoy, disrupted, impossible. This isn't just a a minor setback or a, a momentary Moral lapse and judgment, this is a, a disposition that has been passed down from generation to generation. And while, um, and we can't do anything out of it. We can't, we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? Um, humanism suggests you can do something. You can use technology to to work your way out of it. You can use, the, you know, um, part of, of a humanistic worldview will say, um, well, the problem is people aren't educated well enough. And so if we just have better education, well, the problem with that is it's a faulty worldview that they're educating people in. So it's not gonna go anywhere. You're just spinning spin your wheels. So um, we as humans cannot in and of ourselves do anything about this. Now, I wanna say one thing about this. While the, the effects of the sin are f- of far-reaching, um, lots of implications, the one thing, two things really that are untouched by sin is God God is untainted. God remains holy. That's why uh, he sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He, God in his holiness cannot dwell with sin. Sin would be consumed. God is a consuming fire. But the other thing that's left untainted is the word of the Lord. You say the, the grass withers, the flower fades. Well, why is the grass wither and the flower fade? It's life escaping. It's, it's the onset of death. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, while the psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, the word of the Lord, right? Uh, Psalm 119 just gushes over the reliability of the word of God. The problem is not with the word of God, it's with our understanding of the word of God. And so, again, going back to the rational capacity of humans, we see the word of God. That the reason why people look at the word of God or the, the law of God and say, oh, I don't like that is because we don't understand. There's darkened eyes, darkened, calloused hearts that, that get in the way. So, um, God is not tainted by the fall of sin, neither is the word of the Lord. Um, unless we hold to this fourth and final um, foundation, well, final is not a right word, but the fourth foundational reality, um, we would be a very hopeless bunch of people. Um, but thankfully, the fourth, final reality, uh, foundational reality is that there is redemption in Jesus Christ. By his life, death, resurrection, Christ, Jesus pays for the sins. He makes the wrongs right uh, for all who trust in him. He gives us the new life in Christ, resurrection life, the life that, that we were made to enjoy with God, to be reconciled to him and enjoy that. Um, he makes that available to us through his resurrection. Um, and we see the gospel working in a way to, in, in redemption to deal with the penalty of sin, um, the, the um the debt that was occurred because of our sin is paid in full by Jesus. The power of sin, the grip, the oppression of sin is loosened. The chains are broken. So we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. Um, we have a new Lord, it's, and he's not a dark Lord. Uh, he's not the power of the principalities of air. He's not, not the flesh. It's the Lord of righteousness. And redemption will work its way complete that one day there will be no sin. The presence of sin will be eradicated totally. And so this is, this is the, the, the four foundational realities of, of God, God speaks, sin's a problem, God has a solution through redemption in Christ Jesus. And, and this really gets us to, um, and all of these pieces have to be in place to have a biblical worldview. You can't do like a uh, buy one, get three free sort of scenario, you know, like leave one out, right? Or, or you can't do that. They all have to be present to, to build that foundation, otherwise you're gonna have uneven legs. Um, and really, the getting to the redemption piece is, is the gooey nugget filling of the Christian worldview. Again, going back to that quote, um, at the very beginning, talk, Gary Morrison: Marston, everything in worldview has to be connected back to the saving work of Jesus Christ, um, because he's provided plentiful redemption and all things will be made new. So what this means is, here's, here's, a, here's an implication of this Um, of seeing all of these things in place, because redemption will be plentiful and full and complete, Christians can have an optimistic worldview toward the future, right? Um, Christians should not be doom and gloom. Like it's all gonna end up in a giant train wreck, right? That's not... That's not what we're moving toward. There might be waves of darkness. Um, If you talk about um, waves of of renewal and reformation that occur, and then sometimes there's darkness that comes as there's backsliding that occurs. There might be waves of it. But overall, the trajectory is towards a bright future. Um, And that's something that that a Christian worldview gives us. Uh, We have a sure hope. So this... When we have those four foundational realities in place, this, this gives us the contours of the meta-narrative of Scripture. This should be familiar, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or even uh, when we talk about the, the gospel power, God, sin, Jesus, faith, um, because it's, it's by grace through faith that you are saved. Um, These give us the meta narrative of Scripture um, because, going back to another quote towards the beginning, a worldview is linked to a story. It's always connected to a story, a vision of the good life, and Scripture actually gives us a vision of the good life and how to get there. It has to do with trusting God, obeying His commands, and and believing in the saving work of Christ. Uh, A humanistic worldview will try to go at this by doing it apart from God. Um, they'll pursue the state. They'll, they'll set up the state as their Lord. Uh, technology, medicine, autonomy, hedonism, just the, the thrill-seeking thrill of pleasure. They'll find other ways to go about the pursuit of the good life uh, devoid of God. Biblical worldview does the exact opposite. God brings us to the good life. It's, it's the acknowledgement that it's God who brings us to the good life. Um, as we see our need from a brokenness of sin, he provides for us in every way. Um, in Christ Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could walk according to his ways. And this brings us to biblical theism. Here's what you reckon with these things and this is what, and, and hold these to your heart and live them out. This is what a biblical theistic worldview sounds like. It sounds like this. Everyone is born in sin and is in need of a savior. A person can only be saved by accepting the atoning word work word of Jesus Christ by faith, evidenced by genuine repentance. So um, the need for faith and repentance. Martin Luther says the sum of the Christian life is that of faith and repentance. The Christian religion is the only valid religion and provides God's requirements for all spheres of life. So that that encompasses all of what we just covered. Um, in in all of those four foundational, um, what did I call them, four foundational realities. Um, What this means is when it it talks about the word of God, Christian religion is the only valid religion and provides God's requirements for all spheres of life. It means that Christianity is an all-of-life religion. You can't compartmentalize it. Um, It it doesn't just have things to say about spiritual matters, but all things, which is why these things push us out toward thinking about politics and uh, education and homesteading and vocation and economics and all of the various pieces that float around in the existence of our life. This provides a religious foundation for those things. Abraham Kuyper, quote my homeboy here, says, religion concerns the whole of our our human race, This race is the product of God's creation. It is his wonderful workmanship, his absolute possession. Therefore, the whole of mankind must be uh, imbued with the fear of the Lord, must be enraptured with the fear of of the Lord. For not only did God create all men, not only is he for all men, but his grace also extends itself, not only as a special grace to the elect, but also the common grace to all mankind." All partial religion drives the wedges of dualism into life, but one supreme calling must impress the stamp of oneness upon all human life because one God upholds it and preserves it just as he created it. So the reality of God, God is the absolute reality, gives his absolute standard for all people so that we can inhabit reality the way that we ought to. That's what he's saying in a nutshell. Um, also saying a lot of cooler things, and the way that um, so we've had three of the the four spheres, um, biblical theism. You got the the socialism. You got the the secular humanism. Um, one way that uh, a way that Christians can get this wrong is by um, settling for a synthesized worldview. So. We hold some biblical truth, but then we import other stuff as we see fit. And this is where you end up with um, what's called the moderate Christian worldview. It sounds like this. And this, again, is from the Nehemiah Institute after their study and surveys and all that stuff. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, not a religion with rules and regulations. So there you see a downplaying in the standard of God. Repentance, if it's necessary for believers, again, there's some sub- subjectivism there. Was um, it necessary for me? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know what standards going to tell me. I don't know. Uh, repentance, if it's necessary for believers, should be should take a backseat to grace. So instead of upholding both God's grace and His requirements, we settle for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, that, that eliminates the need for obedience. What the Apostle Paul in the Book of Romans, the bookends of, of Romans. Um, he talks about the obedience of faith, that true faith that's produced by God's grace, right? You, you can't have faith, faith in God apart from grace, God's grace coming to you. Um, that kind of faith, grace-given faith, will produce an obedience of faith, right? That, that leads Christians to live righteously according to God's standard. And so here you see a, the law sort of gets downplayed and washed a little bit. It's not as, it's not as prevalent. It definitely doesn't passages like psalm 119 that says um the law of the lord revives the soul doesn't make sense to them right because well i don't it's not going to compute because it doesn't have this high view of god's standard of god's law and, and what god wants to do so um what happens when we downplay um the word law um our understanding of sin will shrink okay so if, if we if we ignore or downplay the standard, the reality of our sinfulness will, not that we become less sinful, but our awareness of our sin will shrink. And if that shrinks, then so will our repentance. And if our repentance shrinks, so will our refreshing, and so then will our joy. Okay, so true Christian worldview in dealing with the the religious tenets is going to say, to be able to admit, okay, yeah, we are deeply broken. But we have a, a remedy in Christ Jesus, and it will be this lifestyle uh, of faith and repentance and joy, celebration, thanksgiving. Um, bringing down the home stretch here. Oh, I'm doing so good. Christians, and this goes back to a comment that I think Tim you made. Christians are often accused of interpreting reality with certain religious presuppositions while non-Christians maintain that they're being completely objective. This is a fallacy. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody is operating from these presuppositions or these first principles of faith. So um, there is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. This, this secular humanist idea is a fallacy, and it's one that Christians ought to be pushing back against. Again, pushing the antithesis. What do you mean? Where do you get that? By whose, <laughs> by whose authority? Norman Harper says, every human being has faith in something which affects his or her understanding of everything. The premise that faith may be objectively, or facts may be, I've got lots of typos I'm dealing with here. The premise that facts may be objectively known, absolutely uninfluenced by faith of the knowing is simply untrue. So just like there are underlying presuppositions to having a biblical worldview, and those four big foundational pieces are are part of that, um, a humanistic worldview also is operating by big foundational principles. And on that sheet, we got a little bit of time here. Um, I want to just kind of give you a side-by-side comparison. I, I ripped this out of um, Gary DeMar's book, who ripped it out of, I think, a Greg Bonson book or something, so I don't feel so bad about it. Um, but let's look at these, these, the common threads here are the thematic threads between a biblical worldview and a humanistic worldview. There's scriptures uh, I'll let you go home if you want to look these up. And so the, the ones in the scriptures are typically like assertions of truth. Like these are, are reality things um, that are being proclaimed. And then in the other column, the humanistic worldview, we're seeing manifestations of people operating. So if like uh, the Daniel 4 passage is going to take you to, um, I think it's King Nebuchadnezzar talking about his own glory, that he built his own city for his own glory. Right, um, he did it by his own own might, his own power. So here, here's the first one: the biblical worldview. Uh, the tenant, one of the, we got ten tenants of these biblical worldviews, and these these are really going. We'll come back to these because this, these will launch us into other spheres of life. God alone is sovereign. Romans eleven thirty six, where the humanist worldview proclaims that man is sovereign, um, that he has the ability to to you know I'm I'm the captain of my own ship, the master of my own fate. The second one. Uh, regards with faith in God. Um, that faith in God is necessary for life, for godliness, for salvation. Um, and then on the other side, you've got the humanistic worldview that this is: there's no need for God. We can have faith in ourselves. Um, and Genesis 11, where is that? What is that? Is that um, Babel? Would be an example. Um, the, the. Oh yeah, it's like, oh, um, let us show God how good we are. Um, let's sh- demonstrate our own abilities. We don't need God. Um, Third one, laws originate with God. This one is really important, especially getting into politics. Laws originate with God, absolutes based upon the character of God. So God's law are these absolute standards which are based upon the character of God. You see this through, that's the 10 commandments that are being laid out. Whereas a a humanistic worldview will say, nope, uh, we want to choose what the law is, so it says, the, the law originates within man. There are no absolutes. Law is what man says it is. In Judges 17, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Freedom is the next one. Man's freedom comes from redemption in Christ and obedience to his law. Um, John 8 says, uh, he's come to set us free, free indeed. Um, another passage would be, um, is it, it speaks of the, the law of liberty. Somebody help me. Is that Philippians or James. Anyway, James, it's um, talking about freedom comes from, so freedom and redemption um, from sin, the bondage of sin, but also the freedom in obeying God's law, which points us towards human flourishing. Think of Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who sinks his teeth in the word of God. Um, that's where freedom comes from the humanistic worldview, man's goals of liberties and freedom come about by denying the need for God's law so they want to invent liberty and freedom on their own again you're seeing the trend here between a dependence on God and a, an attempt at independence from God power and authority all power and authority are ordained by God rulers are ministers of God this will be another really important one as we come back to politics I'm talking about um, there are different categories of ministers. There there are um, the ecclesial um, ministers, ministers of the gospel of the church, uh, attending to um, the sphere of of God's covenant people, and there are civil magistrates who are also called ministers. That's why, like in the UK, they're called prime ministers. Like they're they're still using that language of ministers, and they're not there, uh, unlike what the humanists worldview would say they're, they're elected officers, servants of the majority, um, while ruling is to happen um, for the benefit of the people, ultimately it's done in service to God. So um, there's a difference there in, in uh, the approach of, of understanding of, of government and authority and where that authority comes from. Uh, man is created in the image of God and therefore is accountable to him for all of his actions because he is the potter, we are the clay. The humanistic worldview tries to deny that and says that, well, we came out of, we, it was a big bang. It was um, these two cells or a cell evolved over time, and, and because of that, uh, it happened naturally without any sort of um, working of God, and so it claims that man has evolved from um, impersonal matter over a long period of time and therefore is accountable to no one, uh, which is a good way to tank a society. Man's end is predestined by God. We saw how we used that passage earlier, um, that he establishes his ways, uses his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. Um, Man, or the state, is the the predestiner, typo, of all things. Man or state is the predestiner of all things. Um, That does not work out well. Man bows down to subjection to Christ. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow Whereas in the humanistic worldview, man bows down um, to new gods, another typo, that should be without a K, to new gods, um, man bows the knee of the knee, man bows the knee to gods of his own making. There you go. Idolatry. Man learns by thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what we're doing here. That's what we want to do. That's the glory of, of man is thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, we learn by doing that, and again, truth is revelational, and we go to the Word of God for that revelation, whereas humanistic worldview, man learns by reason alone, which is silly because reason is broken if, if sin is real. Um, if it is not reasonable, it cannot be true. So they'll, they'll try to dismiss, that's where a lot of places, um, you'll see dismissal of, of the... Um, the supernatural, miracles, the, the resurrection. If it's not if it's not rational, if it's not reasonable, it's not true. And so they, they try to isolate just to the material world, but there's more than material. Uh, and the last one, man's problem is sin. This is the biblical worldview. The problem is sin. Man must be recreated by God, become a new creation. Whereas in a humanistic worldview, you see this right away after the fall in Genesis 3. The blame for society's ills is shifted to others and ultimately to God. You see this, God comes at him, says, Adam, what have you done? He's just like, it wasn't me, it was the woman. And it's the fact, it's it's the woman that you gave me, God. And so you see this finger pointing uh, instead of acknowledging sin for what it was and taking um, responsibility for it. What we have to realize, as we're talking about uh, worldviews, the worldview of humanism and biblical Christianity are in direct Conflict with one another. They, they are irreconcilable to one another. There is no neutral zone. Neither worldview will rest until one displaces the other. There's a hostility in worldview. Like, in, I don't know if we realize that. The, the enmity that's, that's going on between worldviews, the, the, uh, the principalities, the, the doctrines, the dark doctrines, or the uh, um, philosophies of deceit that are at play, they're, they're rivaling. There's a war going on in the mind, for the mind. Um, and neither worldview will rest until one displaces the other. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. The Christian cannot serve man, uh, and man is the master of humanism. And you cannot serve God. You can't serve man and God. Um, and God is the master of man. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who goes, or he who does not gather with me scatters. Um, and so there, there is this call to an urgency toward the the necessity for a, a biblical worldview